Chapter Thirteen of The Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Crowgirl. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Thirteen A Primer of Progressive Crime. Without warning or presage, the still evening air was smitten and made softly musical by the pealing of a distant chime, calling vespers to its brothers in Antwerp's hundred belfries, and one by one, far and near, the responses broke out, until it seemed as if the world must be vibrant with silver and brazen melody, until at last the great bells in the cathedral spire stirred and grumbled drowsily, then woke to such ringing resonance as dwarfed all the rest, and made it seem as nothing." Like the beating of a mighty heart heard through the rushing clamor of the pulses, a single deep-throated bell boomed solemnly six heavy, rumbling strokes. Six o'clock. Kirkwood roused out of his dour brooding. The Amsterdam Express would leave at six-thirty-two, and he knew not from what station. Striding swiftly across the promenade, he entered a small tobacco shop, and made inquiry of the proprietress. His command of French was tolerable, he experienced no difficulty in comprehending the good woman's instructions. Trains for Amsterdam, she said, left from the Gare Centrale, a mile or so across the city. Monsieur had plenty of time and to spare. There was the tram line if Monsieur did not care to take a fiacre. If he would go by way of the Vieux Bus, he would discover the tram cars of the Rue Kipdorp. Monsieur was most welcome. Monsieur departed with the more haste, since he was unable to repay this courtesy with the most trifling purchase. Such slight matters annoyed Kirkwood intensely. Perhaps it was well for him that he had the long walk to help him work off the fit of nervous exasperation into which he was plunged every time his thoughts harked back to that jovial blackguard striker. He was quite calm when, after a brisk walk of some fifteen minutes, he reached the station. A public clock reassured him with the information that he had the quarter of an hour's leeway. It was only seventeen minutes past eighteen o'clock. Belgian railway time, always confusing. Inquiring his way to the Amsterdam train, which was already waiting at the platform, he paced its length, peering brazenly in at the coach windows, now warm with hope, now shivering with disappointment, realizing as he could not but realize that, all else aside, his only chance of rehabilitation lay in meeting calendar. But in none of the coaches or carriages did he discover anyone even remotely resembling the fat adventurer, his daughter, or Mulready. Satisfied that they had not yet boarded the train, he stood aside, tortured with forebodings, while anxiously scrutinizing each individual of the throng of intending travellers. Perhaps they had been delayed, by the Alethea's lateness in making port very likely— Perhaps they purposed taking not this, but a later train. Perhaps they had already left the city by an earlier, or had returned to England. On time the bell clanged its warning. The guards bawled theirs. Doors were hastily opened and slammed. The trucks began to groan, couplings jolting as the engine chafed in constraint. The train and Kirkwood moved simultaneously out of opposite ends of the station, the one to rattle and hammer round the eastern boundaries of the city, and straighten out at top speed on the northern route for the Belgian line, the other to stroll moodily away, idle hands and empty pockets, bound aimlessly anywhere. It didn't matter. Nothing whatever mattered in the smallest degree, ere now the outlook had been dark, but this he felt to be the absolute nadir of his misfortunes. Presently, after a while, as soon as he could bring himself to it, he would ask the way and go to the American consulate. 
but just now, low as the tide of chance had ebbed, leaving him stranded on the flats of vagabondage, low as showed the measure of his self-esteem, he could not tolerate the prospect of begging for assistance, help which would in all likelihood be refused, since his story was quite too preposterous to gain credence in official ears that daily are filled with the lamentations of those whose motives do not bear investigation." and if he chose to eliminate the strange chain of events which had landed him in Antwerp, to base his plea solely on the fact that he was a victim of the San Francisco disaster, he himself was able to smile, if sourly, anticipating the incredulous consular smile with which he would be shown the door. No, that he would reserve as a last resort. True, he had already come to the jumping-off place. To the court of the last resort alone could he now appeal, but— not yet. After a while he could make his petition, after he had made a familiar of the thought that he must armour himself with callous indifference to rebuff, to say naught of the waves of burning shame that would overwhelm him when he came to the point of asking charity. He found himself, neither knowing nor caring how he had won thither, in the Place Verte, the vast venerable pile of the cathedral rising on his right, hotels and quaint old-world dwellings with peaked roofs and gables and dormer windows enclosing the other sides of the square. The chimes, he could hear none but those of the cathedral, were heralding the hour of seven. Listless and preoccupied in contemplation of his wretched case, he wandered purposelessly half round the square, then dropped into a bench on its outskirts. It was some time later that he noticed, with a casual and different eye, a porter running out of the Hôtel de Flandre, directly opposite, and calling a fiacre into the carriage-block. As languidly he watched a woman, very becomingly dressed, follow the porter down to the curb. The fiacre swung in, and the woman dismissed the porter before entering the vehicle, a proceeding so unusual that it fixed the onlooker's interest. He sat rigid with attention. The woman seemed to be giving explicit and lengthy directions to the driver, who nodded and gesticulated his comprehension. The woman was Mrs. Hallam. The first blush of recognition passed, leaving Kirkwood without any amazement. It was an easy matter to account for her being where she was. Thrown off the scent by Kirkwood at Sheerness the previous morning, she had missed the day-boat, the same which had ferried over those whom she pursued. Returning from Sheerness to Queensborough, however, she had taken the night boat for Flushing in Antwerp, and not without her plan, who was not a woman to waste her strength aimlessly. Kirkwood believed that she had had from the first a very definite campaign in view. In that campaign, Queensborough Pier had been the first strategic move, the journey to Antwerp apparently the second, and the American was impressed that he was witnessing the inception of the third decided step. The conclusion of this process of reasoning was inevitable. Madame would bear watching. Thus was a magical transformation brought about. Instantaneously, lassitude and vain repinings were replaced by hopefulness and energy. In a twinkling the young man was on his feet, every nerve a thrill with excitement. Mrs. Hallam, blissfully ignorant of this surveillance over her movements, took her place in the fiacre. The driver clucked to his horse, cracked his whip, and started off at a slow trot, a pace which Kirkwood imitated, keeping himself at a discreet distance to the rear of the cab, but prepared to break into a run whenever it should prove necessary. Such exertion, however, was not required of him. Evidently Mrs. Hallam was in no great haste to reach her destination. The speed of the fiacre remained extremely moderate. Kirkwood found a long, brisk stride fast enough to keep it well in sight. 
round the green square, under the beautiful walls of Notre-Dame d'Anvers, through Grande Place and past the Hôtel de Ville, the cab proceeded, dogged by what might plausibly be asserted the most persistent and infatuated soul that ever crossed the water, and so on into the Quai Van Dyke, turning to the left at the old Steen dungeon and slowing to a walk, moving soberly up the drive. Beyond the lip of the embankment the Scheldt flowed, its broad shining surface oily, smooth and dark, a mirror for the incandescent glory of the skies. Over on the western bank old Tête de Flandre lifted up its grim curtains and bastions, sable against the crimson, rampart and parapet edged with fire. Busy little side-wheeled ferry steamers spanked the waters noisily and smudged the sunset with dark, drifting trails of smoke, and ever and anon a rowboat would slip out of the shadow to glide languidly with the current. Otherwise the life of the river was gone, and at their moorings the ships swung in great quietness, riding lights glimmering like low, wan stars. In the company of the latter the young man marked down the Alethea, a sight which made him unconsciously clench both fists and teeth, reminding him of that rare wag, Stryker. To his way of thinking, the behavior of the fiacre was quite unaccountable. Hardly had the horse paced off the length of two blocks on the quay ere it was guided to the edge of the promenade and brought to a stop, and the driver twisted the reins round his whip, thrust the ladder in its socket, turned sideways on the box, and began to smoke and swing his heels. Surveying the panorama of river and sunset with complacency, a cabby, one would venture, without a care in the world, and serene in the assurance of a generous pourboire when he lost his fare. But as for the latter, she made no move. The door of the cab remained closed, like its occupant's mind, a mystery to the watcher. Twilight shadows lengthened, darkling over the land. Street lights flashed up in long, radiant ranks. Across the promenade, hotels and shops were lighted up. People began to gather round the tables beneath the awnings of an open-air café. In the distance, somewhere, a band swung into the dreamy rhythm of a haunting waltz. Scattered couples moved slowly, arm in arm, along the riverside walk, drinking in the fragrance of the night. Overhead, stars popped out in brilliance and dropped their reflections to swim lazily on spellbound waters. And still the fiacre lingered in inaction. Still the driver lorded it aloft in carefree abandon. In the course of time, this inertia, where he had looked for action, this dull suspense, when he had forecast interesting developments, wore upon the watcher's nerves, and made him at once impatient and suspicious. Now that he had begun to doubt, he conceived it as quite possible that Mrs. Hallam, who was capable of anything, should have stolen out of the cab by the other, and to him, invisible door. To resolve the matter, finally, he took advantage of the darkness, turned up his coat-collar, hunched up his shoulders, hid his hands in pockets, pulled the visor of his cap well forward over his eyes, and slouched past the fiacre. Mrs. Hallam sat within. He could see her profile clearly silhouetted against the light. She was bending forward and staring fixedly out of the window across the driveway. Mentally, he calculated the direction of her gaze, then moved away and followed it with his own eyes, and found himself staring at the façade of a third-rate hotel. Above its roof the gilded letters of a sign, catching the illumination from below, spelled out the title of Hôtel du Commerce. Mrs. Hallam was interested in the Hôtel du Commerce. Thoughtfully, Kirkwood fell back to his former point of observation, now richer by another object of suspicion, the hostelry. 
Mrs. Hallam was waiting and watching for someone to enter or to leave that establishment. It seemed a reasonable inference to draw. Well, then, so was Kirkwood, no less than the lady. He deemed it quite conceivable that their objects were identical. He started to beguile the time by wondering what she would do if— of a sudden he abandoned this line of speculation, and catching his breath held it, almost afraid to credit the truth that for once his anticipations were being realized under his very eyes. Against the lighted doorway of the Hôtel du Commerce the figures of two men were momentarily sketched as they came hurriedly forth, and of the two one was short and stout, and even at a distance seemed to bear himself with an accent of assertiveness, while the other was tall and heavy of shoulder. Side by side they marched in step across the embankment to the head of the key gangway, descending without pause to the landing-stage. Kirkwood, hanging breathlessly over the guard-rail, could hear their footfalls ringing in hollow rhythm on the planks of the inclined way, could even discern Callender's unlovely profile in dim relief beneath one of the waterside lights, and he recognized unmistakably Mulready's deep voice, grumbling inarticulately. At the outset he had set after them, with intent to accost Calendar, but their pace had been swift and his irresolute. He hung fire on the issue, dreading to reveal himself, unable to decide which were the better course, to pursue the men or to wait and discover what Mrs. Hallam was about. In the end he waited, and had his disappointment for recompense. For Mrs. Hallam did nothing intelligible— had she driven over to the hotel, hard upon the departure of the men, he would have believed that she was seeking Dorothy, and would furthermore have elected to crowd their interview if she succeeded in obtaining one with the girl. But she did nothing of the sort. For a time the fiacre remained as it had been ever since stopping, then, evidently admonished by his fare, the driver straightened up, knocked out his pipe, disentangled reins and whip, and wheeled the equipage back on the way it had come, disappearing in a dark side street leading eastward from the embankment. Kirkwood was then to believe that Mrs. Hallam, having taken all that trouble and having waited for the two adventurers to appear, had been content with sight of them. He could hardly believe that of the woman. It wasn't like her. He started across the driveway after the fiacre, but it was lost in a tangle of side streets before he could make up his mind whether it was worthwhile chasing or not, and pondering the woman's singular action, he retraced his steps to the promenade rail. Presently he told himself he understood. Dorothy was no longer of her father's party. He had a suspicion that Mulready's attitude had made it seem advisable to Calendar either to leave the girl behind in England, or to segregate her from his associates in Antwerp. If not lodged in another quarter of the city, or left behind, she was probably travelling on ahead, to a destination which he could by no means guess. And Mrs. Hallam was looking for the girl. If there were really jewels in that Gladstone bag, Callender would naturally have had no hesitation about entrusting them to his daughter's care, and Mrs. Hallam avowedly sought nothing else. How the woman had found out that such was the case, Kirkwood did not stop to reckon, unless he explained it on the proposition that she was a person of remarkable address. It made no matter, one way or the other, he had lost Mrs. Hallam, but Callender and Mulready he could put his finger on. They had undoubtedly gone off to the Alethea to confer again with Stryker. That was, unless they proposed sailing on the brigantine, possibly at turn of tide that night." Panic gripped his soul and shook it, as a terrier shakes a rat, when he conceived this frightful proposition. In his confusion of mind he evolved spontaneously an entirely new hypothesis. 
Dorothy had already been spirited aboard the vessel. Calendar and his confederate, delaying to join her from enigmatic motives, were now aboard, and presently the word would be up anchor and away. Were they again to elude him? Not, he swore, if he had to swim for it, and he had no wish to swim. The clothes he stood in, with what was left of his self-respect, were all that he could call his own on that side of the North Sea. Not a boatman on the Scheldt would so much as consider accepting three English pennies in exchange for boat hire. In brief, it began to look as if he were either to swim or to steal a boat. Upon such slender threads of circumstance depends our boasted moral health. In one fleeting minute Kirkwood's conception of the law of meum et tuum, its foundations already insidiously undermined by a series of cumulative misfortunes, toppled crashing to its fall, and was not. He was wholly unconscious of the change. Beneath him, in a space between the quays bridged by the gangway, a number of rowboats, a putative score, lay moored for the night, and gently rubbing against each other with the soundless lift and fall of the river. For all that Kirkwood could determine to the contrary, the lot lay at the mercy of the public. Nowhere about was he able to discern a figure in anything resembling a watchman. Without a quiver of hesitation, moments were invaluable if what he feared were true, he strode to the gangway, stepped down, and with absolute nonchalance dropped into the nearest boat, stepping from one to another until he had gained the outermost. To his joy he found a pair of oars stowed beneath the thwarts. If he had paused to moralize, which he didn't, upon the discovery, he would have laid it all at the door of his lucky star, and would have been wrong. We, who have never stooped to petty larceny, know that the oars had been placed there at the direction of his evil genius, bent upon facilitating his descent into the awareness of crime. Let us, then, pity the poor young man, without condoning his offence. Unhitching the painter, he set one oar against the gunwale of the next boat, and with a powerful thrust sent his own, let us so call it for convenience, stern first out upon the river, then sat him composedly down, fitted the oars to their locks, and began to pull straight across stream, trusting to the current to carry him down to the Alethea. He had already marked down that vessel's riding light, and that not without a glow of gratitude to see it still aloft and in proper juxtaposition to the river-bank, proof that it had not moved. He pulled a good oar, reckoned his distance prettily, and shipping the blades at just the right moment, brought the little boat in under the brigantine's counter with scarce a jar. An element of surprise he held essential to the success of his plan, whatever that might turn out to be. Standing up, he caught the brigantine's after-rail with both hands, one of which held the painter of the purloined boat, and lifted his head above the deck-line. A short survey of the deserted after-deck gave him further assurance— the anchor watch was not in sight. He may have been keeping well forward by Stryker's instructions, or he may have crept off for forty winks. Whatever the reason for his absence from the post of duty, Kirkwood was relieved not to have him to deal with, and drawing himself gently in over the rail, made the painter fast, and stepped noiselessly over toward the lighted oblong of the companionway. A murmur of voices from below comforted him with the knowledge that he had not miscalculated, this time— at last he stood within striking distance of his quarry, the syllables of his surname ringing clearly in his ears and followed by Stryker's fleeting laugh brought him to a pause. He flushed hotly in the darkness. The captain was retailing with relish some of his most successful witticisms at Kirkwood's expense. "'You ought to have seen the way he looked at me,' concluded the raconteur in a gale of mirth. 
Mulready laughed with him, if a little uncertainty. Callender's chuckle was not audible, but he broke the pause that followed. "'I don't know,' he said with doubting emphasis. "'You say you landed him without a penny in his pocket. "'I don't call that a good plan at all. "'Of course, he ain't a factor, but... "'Well, it might have been as well to give him his fair home. "'He might make trouble for us somehow. "'I don't mind telling you, Captain, that you're an ass.' "'The tensity of certain situations numbs the sensibilities.' Kirkwood had never in his weirdest dreams thought of himself as an eavesdropper. He did not think of himself as such in the present instance. He merely listened, edging nearer the skylight, of which the wings were slightly raised, and keeping as far as possible in shadow. "'Oh, I say,' the captain was remonstrating, aggrieved. "'How was I to know he didn't have it in for you? First off, when he comes on board, I'll say this for him, he's as plucky as they make him. I thought he was from the yard.' Then, when I see what a bally innocent he was, I makes up my mind he's just someone you've been playing in one of your little games, and who was looking to square his account, so it did him proper. Evidently, assented Callender dryly, you're a bit of a heavy-handed brute striker. Personally, I'm kind of sorry for the boy. He wasn't a bad sort, as his kind runs, and he was no fool from what little I saw of him. I wonder what he wanted. Possibly, Mulready chimed in suavely, you can explain what you wanted of him in the first place. How did you come to drag him into this business? Oh, that, Callender laughed shortly. That was partly accident, partly inspiration. I happened to see his name on the Pless Register. He'd put himself as down from Frisco. I figured it out that he would be next door to broke and getting desperate, ready to do anything to get home, and thought we might utilize him to smuggle some of the stuff into the States. Once before, if you'll remember— "'No, that was before we got together, Mulready. "'I picked up a fellow countryman on the Strand. "'He was down and out, jumped at the job, "'and we made a neat little wad on it.' "'The more fool you to take outsiders into your confidence,' "'grumbled Mulready. "'Oh,' interrogated Callender, "'mimicking Stryker's accent inimitably. "'Well, you've got a heap to learn about this game, Mull. "'About the first thing is that you must trust old man know-it-all, "'which is me. "'I've run more diamonds into the States in one way or another in my time "'than you ever pinched out of the shirt-front of a toff on the Empire Prom "'before they made the graph too hot for you "'and you came to take lessons from me in the gentle art of living easy.' "'Oh, cut that, can't you? "'Delighted, dear boy. "'One of the first principles next to profiting by the admirable example I set you "'is to make the fellows in your own line trust you.' Now, if this boy had taken on with me, I could have got a bunch of the sparklers on my mere say-so from old Morgenthau up on Finsbury Pavement. He does a steady business hoodwinking the customs for the benefit of his American clients, and himself. And I'd have made a neat little profit besides, something to fall back on if this fell through. I don't mind having two strings to my bow. Yes, argued Mulready, but suppose this Kirkwood had taken on with you and then peached. "'That's another secret. You've got to know your man, be able to size him up. "'I called on this chap for that very purpose, but I saw at a glance he wasn't our man. "'He smelt a nigger in the woodpile and most politely told me to go to the devil. "'But if he had come in, he'd have died before he squealed. I know the breed. "'There's honour among gentlemen that knocks the honour of thieves higher in a kite, "'the old saw to the contrary. Nothing doing. "'You understand me, I'm sure, Mulready,' he concluded with envenomed sweetness.' I don't see yet how Kirkwood got anything to do with Dorothy. Miss Callender to you, Mr. Mulready, snapped Callender. There, there, now, don't get excited. It was when the Hallam passed me word that a man from the yard was waiting on the altar steps for me that Kirkwood came in. He was dining close by. I went over and worked on his feelings until he agreed to take Dorothy off my hands. 
If I had attempted to leave the place with her, they'd have spotted me for sure. My compliments to you, Dick Mulready. There came the noise of chair legs scraped harshly on the cabin deck. Apparently Mulready had leaped to his feet in a rage. I've told you, he began in a voice thick with passion. Oh, sit down, Callender cut in contemptuously. Sit down, do you hear? That's all over and done with. We understand each other now, and you won't try any more monkey shines. It's a square deal and a square divide, so far as I'm concerned. If we stick together, there'll be profit enough for all concerned. Sit down, Mull, and have another slug of the captain's bum rum. Although Mulready consented to be pacified, Kirkwood got the impression that the man was far gone in drink. A moment later he heard him growl, Chin-chin, and Tiffinel to the captain's, Chiro! Now then, Callender proposed, Mr. Kirkwood aside, peace be with him, let's get down to cases. What's the row? asked the captain. The row, Cap'n, is a Hallam female who has unexpectedly shown up in Antwerp. We have reason to believe with malicious intent and a private detective to add to the gaiety of nations. What's the odds? She can't hurt us without lying up trouble for herself. Damn little consolation to us when we're working it out in Dartmoor. Speak for yourself, grunted Mulready surlily. I do, returned Callender easily. We're both in the shadow of Dartmoor, Mull, my boy, since you choose to take the reference as personal. Sing Sing, however, yawns for me alone. It's going to keep on yawning, too, unless I miss my guess. I love my native land most to death, but— Oh, blow that, interrupted the captain irritably. Let's hear about the alum. What are you afraid of? Afraid she'll set up a yell when she finds out we're planting the loot, cap'n. She's just that vindictive. You'd think she'd be satisfied with her end of the stick, but you don't know the hallam. That milk-and-water offspring of hers is the apple of her eye, and Freddy's going to call her the whole shooting match, or Madam will kick over the traces. Well? Well, she's queered us here. We can't do anything if my lady is going to camp on our trail and tell everybody we're shady customers, can we? The question now before the board is, where now? And how? Amsterdam, Mulready chimed in. I told you that in the beginning. But how, argued Callender, the Lord knows I'm willing, but we can't go by rail, thanks to the Hallam. We've got to lose her first of all. But what I'm asking is, what's the matter with the Alethea, Captain? Nothing, so far as Dick and I are concerned. But my dutiful daughter is prejudiced. She's been so long without proper paternal discipline, Callender laughed, that she's rather high-spirited. Of course, I might overcome her objections, but the girl's no fool, and every ounce of pressure I bring to bear just now only helps make her more restless and suspicious. You leave her to me, Mulready interposed with a brutal laugh. I'll guarantee to get her aboard, or drop it, Dick, Callender advised quietly, and go a bit easy with that bottle for five minutes, can't you? Well, then, Stryker resumed, apparently concurring in Callender's attitude, why don't one of you take the stuff, go off quiet, and dispose of it to a proper fence, and come back to divide? I don't see why that— Naturally you wouldn't, chuckled Callender. Few people besides the two of us understand the depth of affection existing between Dick here and me. We just can't bear to get out of sight of each other. We're sure inseparable since night before last. Odd, isn't it? "'You drop it!' snarled Mulready, in accents so ugly that the listener was startled. "'Enough's enough! And there, there, Dick! All right, I'll behave!' Callender soothed him. "'We'll forget and say no more about it.' "'Well, see, you don't.' "'But has either of you a plan?' persisted Stryker. "'I have,' replied Mulready, "'and it's the simplest and best if you could only make this long-lost parent here see it. "'What is it?' 
Mulready seemed to ignore Calendar and address himself to the captain. He articulated with some difficulty, slurring his words to the point of indistinctness at times. "'Simple enough,' he propounded solemnly. "'We've got the Gladstone bag here. Miss Dolly's at the hotel. That's her papa's bright notion. He thinks she's to be trusted. Now then, what's the matter with weighing anchor and slipping quietly out to sea?' "'Leaving the dutiful daughter?' "'Certainly. It's only a drag anyway. Better off without her. Then we can wait our time and get highest market prices.' "'You forget, Dick,' Callender put it, "'that there's a thousand in it for each of us "'if she's kept out of England for six weeks. "'A thousand's five thousand in the land I hail from. "'I can use five thousand in my business.' "'Why can't you be content with what you've got?' "'demanded Mulready wrathfully. "'Because I'm a seventh son of a seventh son, "'I can see an inch or two beyond my nose. "'If Dorothy ever finds her way back to England, "'she'll spoil one of the finest fields of legitimate graft "'I ever licked my lips to look at. "'The trouble with you, Mull, is you're too high-toned. "'You want to play the swell mobs man from post to finish. "'A quick touch and a clean getaway for yours. "'Now that's all right. That has its good points. "'But you don't want to underestimate the advantages of a good blackmailing connection.' If I can keep Dorothy quiet long enough, I look to the Hallam and precious Freddy to be a great comfort to me in my old age. Then, for God's sake, cried Mulready, go to the hotel, get your brat by the scruff of her pretty neck, and drag her aboard. Let's get out of this. I won't, returned Callender inflexibly. The dispute continued, but the listener had heard enough. He had to get away and think, could no longer listen. Indeed, the voices of the three blackguards below came but indistinctly to his ears, as from a distance. He was sick at heart and ablaze with indignation by turns. Unconsciously, he was trembling violently in every limb, swept by alternate waves of heat and cold, feverish one minute, shivering the next, all of which phenomena were due solely to the rage that welled inside his heart. Stealthily he crept away to the rail to stand grasping it and staring across the water with unseeing eyes at the gay old city twinkling back with her thousand eyes of light. The cool night breeze sweeping down unhindered over the level netherlands from the bleak north sea was comforting to his throbbing temples. By degrees his head cleared, his rioting pulses subsided, he could think, and he did. Over there, across the water, in the dingy and disreputable Hôtel du Commerce, Dorothy waited in her room, doubtless the prey of unnumbered nameless terrors, while aboard the brigantine her fate was being decided by a council of three unspeakable scoundrels, one of whom, professing himself her father, openly declared his intention of using her to further his selfish and criminal ends. His first and natural thought— to steal away to her and induce her to accompany him back to England, Kirkwood perforce discarded. He could have wept over the realization of his unqualified impotency. He had no money, not even cab fare from the hotel to the railway station. Something subtler, more crafty, had to be contrived to meet the emergency. And there was one way, one only, he could see none other— Temporarily he must make himself one of the company of her enemies, force himself upon them, ingratiate himself into their good graces, gain their confidence, then, when opportunity offered, betray them. And the power to make them tolerate him, if not receive him as a fellow, the knowledge of them and their plans that they had unwittingly given him, was his. And Dorothy was waiting. 
He swung round, and without attempting to muffle his footfalls, strode toward the companionway. He must pretend he had just come aboard. Subconsciously he had been aware, during his time of pondering, that the voices in the cabin had been steadily gaining in volume, rising louder and yet more loud, Mulready's ominous, drink-blurred accents dominating the others. There was a quarrel afoot. As soon as he gave it heed, Kirkwood understood that Mulready, in the madness of his inflamed brain, was forcing the issue, while Callender sought vainly to calm and soothe him. The American arrived at the head of the companionway at a critical juncture. As he moved to descend, some low, cool-toned retort of Callender's seemed to enrage his confederate beyond reason. He yelped aloud with wrath, sprang to his feet, knocking over a chair, and leaping back toward the foot of the steps, flashed an adroit hand behind him and found his revolver. "'I've stood enough from you!' he screamed, his voice oddly clear in that moment of insanity. "'You've played with me as long as you will, you hulking American hog! Now I'm going to show—' As he held his fire to permit his denunciation to bite home— Kirkwood, appalled to find himself standing on the threshold of a tragedy, gathered himself together and launched through the air, straight for the madman's shoulders. As they went down together, sprawling, Mulready's head struck against a transom, and the revolver fell from his limp fingers. End of chapter 13 Reading by Crowgirl,